From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. One of the things I would encourage people to do is to recapture uh, some of the reasons that we all went to medical school in the first place and just try to add a minute or two of, of humanizing care to every encounter. That's Dr. Stephen Marin talking about connecting with your patients. We'll hear more from Dr. Marin about humanizing healthcare and improving the provider-patient relationship later in the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Care Credit is a proven payment solution for your patients' out-of-pocket healthcare cost, including deductibles, copays, and other costs not covered by insurance. When you accept Care Credit at your practice, your patients can pay over time for their health care costs. The Care Credit Health, Wellness, and Personal Credit Card can help providers increase patient satisfaction and practice growth while decreasing time spent on billing and collections. And your patients can move forward with the care they need without delay. Care Credit currently has over 11 million cardholders and is accepted in more than 220,000 locations nationwide. As a leader with more than 30 years of experience in patient payment solutions for healthcare, Care Credit is committed to helping patients and practices navigate payment challenges successfully. Learn more about how Care Credit helps providers deliver a better patient financial experience at carecredit.com/mgma. There's a rising thought among doctors that says technology enhances our ability to provide high-quality care at reduced cost. However, it can distance us from the human-to-human connection with our patients. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Marin. Dr. Marin has extensive experience in healthcare and strategic communications, and he's using that knowledge to change attitudes and behavior in healthcare. Dr. Marin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dan. And you have a unique background, not only as an MD, but as you describe it on your LinkedIn page, as a physician executive. And that's someone who's involved in both strategic operations and innovative ways and thinking about healthcare. So I want to take a step back then. Have you tell our audience a little bit about your career in healthcare and how you got where you are today? (laughs) It's been a little bit of a winding path. Um, I was really fortunate in the years before I went to medical school to have had an extraordinary mentor, uh, Dr. Doug Baker, who had gotten his PhD in science education. He was a professor in the biology department. And I, I worked for him as a teaching assistant. And over the two years I worked for him, he exposed me to a lot about uh, pedagogy and learning theory and instructional design. And that was really the mindset that I brought with me to medical school. And I got involved in the Education Planning and Policy Committee during medical school. And then while I was in medical school, um, I actually began what we would now call kind of an entrepreneurial set of projects. And and we didn't call it back back then. Um, But I I proposed, for example, um, to to the NYU Management Institute to do some workshops on uh, administrative management for doctors. This was back in the 1980s. Uh, so here I am, I'm a, a, a first year resident in pediatrics, but I'm also the program director for this two day series of workshops that, that NYU uh, was, was, was running. And, and it really kind of set the stage for my thinking about the, 
the relationships between the disciplines of, of medicine as a, as, a, as a clinical discipline, uh, kind of the administrative uh, uh, things that wrapped, wrapped around it, um, and, and, and exposed me to kind of public health policy. And that kind of set the stage for that, that early part of my career. I ended up leaving residency and going to work for the New York City Health Department as a policy and program development specialist. And then in a, in a surprise twist, uh, I got recruited to, to do policy work. I thought I was joining a health policy firm, but it turned out I was joining a public affairs agency. And I learned a lot about strategic communications. And then once that part of my career was kind of settled, I thought, wow, you know, there's this whole discipline about communications. We could really use that in healthcare. So ever since then, it's been my kind of uh, aspiration to bring that knowledge and understanding of, of strategic communications and how to, how to leverage communications to change the knowledge, attitudes, and behavior of, of target audiences back to healthcare. And it's really only been the last four or five years as we've moved into some of the challenges of value-based care uh, that those skills have really become uh, important. Uh, and I've been able to show how, how much value they can add uh, to, to clinical operations. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a featured presenter at the MGMA annual conference this fall in New Orleans. Um, I'm looking forward to meeting you there in person. Um, and listen to your presentation. You have this, the title of this is, is really cool, Humanizing Healthcare, Strengthening the Patient-Provider Relationship to Improve Outcomes. I love that turn of phrase, humanizing healthcare. I'm just curious, how did you land on that and, and what do you mean by it? Uh, it, it so as, as part of that kind of non-clinical aspect earlier in my career, I did spend some time working around, around information services and information technology. I, I worked on a very early uh, clinical decision support platform called Physicians Decisions. Uh, is actually acquired by Elsevier and bundled in with MD Consult. Uh, but we were really kind of promoting this idea of technology-enabled care. I was going out to uh, some many of our, our clients, uh, customers, hospitals, and, 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 and medical centers, looking at how technology was being used. And it really kind of came to me during my observation that in many ways, the applications of technology were in fact getting in between the doctor and the patient in their relationship. And I began to look at, you know, were there some unintended consequences of, of, this, uh, of these changes in the workflow? Um, and, then, and then once I became the chief medical officer of a, of a national primary care network, um, really started to kind of push on that and see whether there were things that we were doing because of the outside influences over the way we were delivering care, whether it's um, you know, the, the, the way we did uh, 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 capture of billing and coding, the way that we were asking clinicians to document in order to, uh, to you know, to, to meet outside expectations um, for documentation, uh, whether it was the way the technology was, you know, interfering with the capacity for the uh, doctor and patient to connect. Uh, and as part of that, uh, began to do a little research uh, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but basically I, I came to understand that a lot of what we were, were doing was trying to look for some meaning in the data, um, but we were losing what we mean to each other and the, really the power and importance of the person-to-person of the -person connection in achieving what are really some of our, our quality and, and outcome goals. Mm -hmm. 
I want to follow up on that. We, it's been well documented that healthcare is moving to treating wellness now as opposed to treating sickness to really communicating better with that patient. So what will it take for providers and practices to do a better job of humanizing, as you say, those relationships with their patients? Well, you know, in many ways, uh, especially when we look at the, uh, the demands made on us by fee-for-service medicine, is the, the objective for a very long time was, let's keep the waiting room full, let's keep the calendars full, and, you know, it's the patients who are present for us that re- we're going to keep our focus on. Uh, but when you start to think about things like wellness and prevention, you have to start to think about those patients who may not be in the waiting room. And how can we as providers uh, be present for them or how can they be present for us when they're not necessarily in the waiting room? I I had an experience uh, with a practice I was working with in upstate New York and uh, they were uh, actually entering into their first uh, value-based contract. And so the population that was attributed to them was defined and they didn't really have any analytics capability. So it wasn't like they had some big clinical analytics platform they could count on. They had their practice management system. So what we did was we simply output from the practice management system, when was the last time all of these people had come to see us or come to see them? And what we discovered was a significant number, uh, 25 to 30% of the patients who were in the population pool that they were being judged on had not come into the practice for over a year. And so of course, then you become concerned, you know, in, in, in value-based care, you wanna intervene before an event occurs. So we came up with a scheme where we simply called those patients up and said something like, hi, this is Dr. So-and-so's office. Uh, we haven't seen you in a while, is everything okay? And what we discovered was that many of these patients were having significant health problems that they were trying to manage on their own for any one of a number of reasons. And that's really what we mean by humanizing healthcare. How can we say, uh, uh, as a physician, I'm responsible for this population, not just the ones who raise their hand and self-select for care in any given day, but really thinking about these people's health over time. And another example uh, with an accountable care organization I was consulting with where uh, we this this particular one had some analytics capability, so we discovered in the course of uh, looking at the population that was attributed to them uh, that a number of the patients with COPD uh, had been making many, many trips to the emergency room and had been hospitalized a number of times in the prior year, and yet again, they had not come into the primary care office. So, in fact, for those patients, we had to invest a little bit of extra time and attention to get them stabilized uh, to the point where they were now coming into primary care and coming into uh, ambulatory specialty care, but not necessarily using the local hospital as their uh, uh, as their primary care source. And again, this is about saying, okay, I as a practice, our practice is going to look at the population we serve and take some level of responsibility for their health above and beyond their sick care. Mm-hmm. You have another interesting phrase that you use in your presentations and in your writings, 
It's professional intimacy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I I had to. I wanted to kind of figure that out myself. But in the context of healthcare, what does professional intimacy involve? What does that look like? Well, it's it's really my way of, and I, I admit I, I I sensationalized the term a little bit, but it's really about reminding uh, the healthcare professionals and 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 reminding you know practice leadership. Um, of the power of continuity and connection. And, and I'll tell you how we discovered this. Um, again, I, I was the chief medical officer for a national primary care network. We had 14, 42 offices in 14 states around the country, uh, largely uh, homebound elderly. It was a big house calls practice as well, but uh, we, we, we really had this population. And, and one of the payers came along and said, um, you're, 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 you're delivering too much care. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're increasing the cost of primary care. We think you're, you're, you're delivering too much care. And, uh, and we said, look, let's study this. Let's see what the effect of our effort, our extra effort with these patients is doing to not just your, the line item for primary care costs, but your overall total cost of care for these patients. And what we, what we discovered was that uh, when, when uh, our team and our teams were uh, a, a physician, a medical assistant, and a telephonic patient care coordinator. So that was the, the team that we, we uh, assigned to a particular patient. When our team delivered 75% or more of the primary care, hospitalization rates, the use of specialty uh, uh, physicians, and, um, and emergency room rates went down. Utilization of the, of the inpatient environment Utilization of the emergency room went down dramatically when our team delivered 75% or more of care. When that level of primary care, same cost, by the way, was divided among different providers, it didn't have an effect. So let's just say a patient was being seen 12 times a year. When one team provided 75% of those 12 visits, you, the utilization pattern shifted. When different teams provided those 12 visits, utilization didn't change. And when we dug down into it, it was really the, the, this factor of continuity and connection of the same team of people that were involved with those patients every day. That's what we call professional intimacy. When we know you so well, and when you know us so well, that there's a level of affinity, a level of acceptance and commitment to the care plan that can really have a positive impact on patients' quality of health. And, and sometimes positive impact when, you're, when you've got you know, a patient with multi-condition complexes, sometimes quality of health is just about stability. It's about not getting worse or about preventing uh, uh, preventable morbidity. Uh, and in, in some cases, it can mean actually improving health. But the whole point of professional intimacy is when we discovered this fact that you know, same amount of care to two people, but when the care is delivered more consistently by the same team, we can really have an effect on people's health. Mm -hmm. In your research, where have you found that providers are, are finding success in humanizing healthcare and, and providing professional intimacy to their interactions with patients? Well, you know, first of all, I think we need to start to be more inclusive in terms of what we consider healthcare. And we're seeing this a lot right now in terms of the buzz around what is variously called social determinants of health, or so for some people, not non-traditional 
determinants of health. And you know, th th I will say there's there uh, within the medical community there it remains some controversy about whether doctors should be responsible for some of these social determinants, housing, food, finance. Um, but the fact of the matter is this is this is a trend that we're seeing happen, and we think, and I personally think that this is an important part of our capacity to to kind of humanize the relationship between doctors and patients. I'm not going to look at you now just as a biomedical phenomenon. You're not going to be, you know, you're, you're going to be a person, not just, you know, your, your, your condition. Uh, and I think we need to embrace the fact that, that the medical community and practices, uh, you know, really shouldn't shy away from addressing some of the outside forces that are influencing the way we deliver care. Um, I, you know, one of the things that really frightens me sometimes is uh, the number of reports that have come out even in the last 12 months that people will delay care due to some financial issues associated with high deductible plans. And, and you know, it's interesting because the, the dentists have, have had a, a, a line on this for a long time. And there's, there's things that, that particularly people in, in private practice or in medical groups can learn from the dentists. And I, you know, the question I ask often in talks is, how many people have gotten a postcard in the last six months from their dentist to remind them to come in for a visit, uh, or, or these days a telephone call or a text, and then, of course, many people raise their hand, and then you ask how many people have gotten it from their doctor, and nobody raises their hand. And, you know, the doctors have, the dentists have also used a lot of financial instruments like care credit to allow people to, um, to uh, uh, cover some of the out-of-pocket costs so they don't have to delay things like, um, you know, uh, gum treatments or or uh, uh, or uh, implants, uh, because you know your 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 mouth and your teeth have a lot to do with your workplace productivity and your uh, ability to succeed. And I think we could learn from that audience um, in terms of how they address, you know, some of the 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 full self of the patient that's in front of them. Um, We've got to help people make these kinds of choices, and physicians really have a lot of uh, a lot of social capital uh, that can be leveraged to their their patients' uh, benefit. You know, I'm I'm a pediatrician by training, and uh, and when I was seeing patients, I would often simply pick up the phone and make a call to the school or to a social services agency, and simply my phone call from Dr. Marin. Uh, can often open a door for a patient that, you know, where there's some resistance to some of these other issues. Do you have an example of uh, either a case study or just a, an experience um, of what a foundation of professional intimacy looks like in a real world scenario? Well, I can give you an example of, of yes, I do, but I, I can also give you an example of the way I teach this. Okay. Uh, in in practice settings, um, it's it's the simplest thing, but again, when you're under that pressure to to see a certain volume of patients a day, it's hard to incorporate this into your thinking, even though it doesn't really take a lot of time. It's the first five minutes of an encounter, and you know it used to be, uh, and I'm old enough to remember this that you would sit with the doctor in their office, their, their desk bookshelf office for five minutes before you would go to the waiting room and, and put on your gown. 
These days, it all starts in the, in the exam room. But we have to replicate a little bit of that old process in the exam room. And, and the first thing is, is physicians should sit and be at eye level or slightly below eye level with a patient. It changes the dynamic, the power dynamic that's associated with uh, the, the respect and authority that, that physicians carry in the, in, in, in the exam room and in the community. But what you really wanna do is equalize that a little bit. So you wanna put people at ease. The second thing you wanna do is, before you ask why are you here, simply say, how are things going? How are things going? How, 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 how have you been handling what's going on in your life? And you give the patient a, a second to respond. And then the final question before you actually get to the problem at hand is, is there anything that I need to know about your ability to stay or get healthy in this situation? And again, you give them that minute, you give the patient the minute to express themselves first. And then you kind of segue into, why are you here? And by taking that five minutes, and it's, it really is no more than that, that humanizes the interaction between the practice and the patient. And it changes the perception of, of not just why they're there, but it changes the perception of the level of connection, the fact that the physician is simply wanting to listen for five minutes and then move on. And, and that's really, you're, you're really saying there that my relationship with you matters. I'm not just here to be a technician for you. I'm here to care for you. And by allowing the patient to talk for a few minutes and asking these kinds of questions, is there anything I need to know about your ability to get or stay healthy? And again, that's, that's a question that says, I'm, I'm really listening so that now everything you tell me after this is going to be processed through that filter so i know my voice has been heard yeah at the heart of it what you're really saying is relationships matter um there's no arguing that point but how how does a provider or a practice suddenly shift gears because as you know there's so much pressure on efficiency patient flow and so the question is is there time to devote to building better relationships and if there is, then what is the time commitment to making that happen? Yeah, I, well, I, I, think, I think the first is to get out of the resistance mindset that says, this is going to disrupt the flow of the practice. You have to, because it's not. And the reason it's not is because the benefits on the back end are a higher level of affinity with the practice, a higher level of loyalty. You're gonna have significantly less conflicts um, some of the stuff that's traditionally put into the realm of patient satisfaction or customer service, this automatically will solve those problems. So rather than say, you know, okay, you know, uh, many physicians are getting CAP scores, um, rather than say, oh, let's put a program in place to improve our CAP scores, let's put a program in place that will help us build this level of connection with our patients and the CAP scores will get better organically. So. It's, it's really a matter of saying, where do we want to focus our energy? And, and to realize that there's enough uh, benefit to adding the discipline to the practice. So again, this is not, this is something that has, there's a tremendous amount of literature on communication. As I said before, there's a whole disciplines from outside of healthcare that have studied 
the, the idea of strategic communications and how to use communications to benefit outcomes. Um, this is an evidence-based practice, and we have to start to look at communications discipline and, and relationship-based care as evidence-based practice. And once you can kind of absorb that, then you can simply say, okay, where in the workflow are we going to insert these moments to build connection? And when you get, if you look at it that way, all of a sudden the time commitments look significantly less. And to tell you the truth, throughput will be better because you will not have to do as much re-explaining um, when you're focused all on relationships that are based upon kind of the logic of the encounter versus the emotion that's associated with the encounter. I think we, we, when we ignore the emotional related issues that come with delivering care, uh, we end up having to do a lot of extra work because many times, you know, you'll, 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 you get the explanation, the, uh, the, the scientific explanation, the patient education sheet, and you give it to the patient and they walk off. And then two days later, they're either back in the practice or they've now gone to the emergency room because they really didn't get it. But if you invest that five minutes, and it's really five minutes with each encounter, and it can be less, by the way, depending on the more, the, the better the relationship with the patient, the less that time has to take. You can recapture that in two minutes if it's somebody with whom you've already established that level of affinity. Yeah, and we've been talking about the communication aspect of this, but there's also the patient financial experience. You write about that. You talk about that. Really, the, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's, this is a, a, a business. And so how do you make that connection then? So you're, you're communicating with the patient, but how do you strengthen it from a financial standpoint as well? How does that work? Yeah. I, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, 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 we recognize that, that healthcare is, is a business just to a certain extent. Um, uh, I, I think of the profession of medicine as a profession. So you've got the profession of medicine and then healthcare as a business. I, I separate those two things. And, and, it, and many doctors do as well. Many, you know, it's like, oh, the, the practice management side of things, I'm just into the patient care part. But again, if we're gonna recognize the reality of people's lives and, and I'm gonna develop that level of connection with you, as a provider of your care, I need to know something about where you are economically. And if, if the economics of your life are gonna interfere or disrupt or, or, um, or clutter uh, our capacity to come to an agreement on your care plan and your capacity to accept and commit to the care plan, then I need to uh, be comfortable uh, knowing where you are in terms of, of your finances. Uh, the other piece of it is we don't wanna we don't want to. We as 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 uh, as healthcare providers, we don't want to be additionally disruptive to people's lives. And you know, there, there's a lot uh, conversation going on right now about surprise bills. Um, I I actually was a recipient of one uh, at one point in my life. I went and had my my uh, my colonoscopy at age 50, and uh, and I made sure to find a gastroenterologist who was in plan for me. And I went and had the uh, experience, and then two weeks later, I get a massive bill from the anesthesiologist who was affiliated with that gastroenterologist's office, who happened to not be on my plan. And I went back to the practice and said, you know, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out 
whether you were in plan or not, where, where did this come from? Oh, well, that's just the anesthesiologist that doctor has a relationship with. And those kinds of things have now become a social phenomenon. And I think we're going to see um, a, a lot of legislative engagement around that. But to tell you the truth, it's a shame that it re requires, you know, uh, uh, legislative reform. Uh, those are the kinds of things where from an experience design perspective, we could figure out systems. The payers could figure out a system to inform a clinician, okay, fine, the team of people who are getting pre-offs are in fact on plan. That, that's not hard uh, for a payer to do. So whether it's that aspect of the financial experience, whether it's supporting people's capacity to pay uh, co-pays or out-of-pockets uh, to, to uh, uh, account for some people's needs in terms of um, uh, they're creating ways of, of paying and not Again, not surprising them post uh, a lot of interest right now in price transparency. This should be very interesting to see what happens as uh, there's an increasing demand uh, from the marketplace and perhaps even from uh, from government bodies to to uh, to be to release uh, price lists uh, so that people can anticipate what things cost and and make plans around them. Uh, but those are all part of just an increasing aspect of healthcare becoming an experience economy. And, and there's a, 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 a brilliant um, strategist named Joe Pine, who's not from healthcare, but has written a lot about this kind of transformation of the overall consumer environment uh, to take into account the needs of users. Uh, and and it's, it is something that I think is, is an interesting um, uh, and growing demand on on healthcare as a as a uh, as as an industry, uh, but it certainly is not traditional in terms of the kinds of ways that we offer our services. But I do think that the more that we can say to people, um, "Here's what things are going to cost. Here's your your out of pocket expense." Uh, and again, back to that question I said before about you know. Do I need to know anything about your ability to get or stay healthy? We have to be willing to hear from people that, well, economically right now, I th th this is a potential barrier for me to work with you to fulfill the goal for my health that you've set. And, and that's really about why finance becomes so important for us to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. How do you get the payers on board? Say you want that extra time to communicate with the patient. So when you're how does that work? What does that relationship with the payer, with the insurance companies look like to have them in your corner to say, hey, look, this is what I'm doing to build these relationships with the patients. Do you, do you go that far or, or what does that negotiation or conversation look like? Well, that's, that's actually one of the big premises behind this kind of big umbrella that's called value-based care. Um, the word value means different things to different people. Um, when we first started to hear about accountable care organizations, value was something that was variously defined as shared savings, meaning we looked at costs associated with a, with a particular patient historically. And if you're able to achieve a certain set of quality measures while reducing the cost to sustain that level of quality, we would split the difference with you. And, and, and for, for us who ran ACOs, you know, if we could get uh, we might invest a little bit more in primary care and reduce some hospitalization rates. And then the hospitals that we prevented, we actually got half that money. That's shared savings. Uh, but there's other quality measures that are going to start to uh, become more prevalent 
I think our uh, the movement towards again caps surveys and what are variously called patient experience or patient satisfaction scores um, do require an investment of time and you can in fact negotiate with commercial payers around the achievement of some of these um, uh, some of these goals that are associated with value-based contracting and and again get some time uh, that's available to you uh, the, the Medicare uh, two or three years ago um, started to allow a billing code for non-face-to-face -face services and uh, it was at least 20 minutes of non-face-to-face -face services around either care coordination or care management services that a practice was performing on behalf of a patient. That's a big step forward and I think that was kind of a test of opening the door as to whether there's value uh, associated with asking physician practices to do things for the patient when the patient isn't there. And that really was opening the door to that. And you can negotiate, uh, and certainly when I was the CMO uh, in, in primary care, uh, we did negotiate similar deals with a number of commercial payers that were tied to our capacity to achieve other objectives, whether it be quality measures or HEDIS measures or utilization measures or uh, and, and utilization is not just about preventing a, a, you know, a emergency department use. It might be about diverting a patient who traditionally goes to the emergency room into an urgent care center, for example. But there's a lot of op creative opportunity in contracting right now. And it's really incumbent upon the practice leadership to start to say, okay, how, how, you know, what do we want to accomplish? You know, do we want to reduce the number of patients per day, allow our physicians to spend more, a little more time with each patient. What can we offer the payers in exchange for that? And and there are ways to improve the the you know kind of um, uh, lifetime value of a relationship with a with a patient. Mm -hmm. Now earlier you were talking about the importance of the relationship when the patient is in the office but you've also written about and lectured on the importance of managing that post-care relationship. So how do you achieve that? What are the best steps or practices someone can take to manage that post-care? Yeah, it's, it's really about building a level of affinity uh, with the patients so that you become their go-to when they need help to solve a problem and, and or, or a, a health-related problem. And they have to trust that when they do reach out to you, that there's going to be a level of responsiveness. Um, and again, this ties a lot back to this issue of what we're contracting for when we're contracting for care uh, with payers and, and plant sponsors. Uh, the other part of it too is, um, you know, there's, I, th I think back to um, the, the primary care doc we had when I was growing up and, uh, and he actually made house calls. And uh, I remember um, my mom had a procedure and a day later there was a knock on our door and there was Dr. Lipton and he stopped by to visit. Now I'm not saying we can do that anymore, uh, but there are other mechanisms by which we can do that level of follow-up. 
And I mentioned before that practice in New York State where we simply had the, the office call and say, hey, it's Dr. Sonso's office. We haven't seen you in a while. Um, those, those kinds of things are not hard to do. And even if you simply leave the message that says, you know, we know you were in the office a couple of days ago, how are you doing? Again, something the dentists do very well after a procedure. Uh, there's always a phone call uh, and a message left, just checking in. That's not hard to do. And the, the value of that, the, the economic value of that is tremendous um, because you're gonna maintain that level of affinity. Uh, but the psychological value is that before things go wrong, the, in, the, the inclination on the part of the patient or their family is gonna be, oh, let's reach out and, and make sure everything's okay. And this is particularly important after a hospitalization, but it's equally important after an office visit where, for example, there was a major change in the plan of care or a major medication change. And you can judge these based upon, you know, the, the patients themselves. Uh, you know, a millennial may be happy getting a text from your office, whereas, you know, one of your older uh, patients uh, with multi-condition complexes may require a, a voice phone call from somebody. And, you, you know, there, there's ways to kind of judge the level of resources that are required to sustain that. Some of them are remarkably low cost, um, but some of them, again, depending on the patient, really there's a lot, a lot of benefit that comes from using the human factor to sustain post-care uh, post relationships. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final words of advice for healthcare leaders who want to embrace professional intimacy and the humanizing of healthcare and in interacting with their patients? You know, one of the things that I, I have written a lot about is um, kind of the way that the, the nature of physicians as a profession have been uh, influenced by uh, the, whole, the overall healthcare ecosystem and, 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 and these non-clinical voices that influence the way we practice medicine today. Um, I think that one of the things I would encourage people to do is to um, not necessarily allow their practice to be completely shaped by these outside forces to recapture uh, some of the reasons that we all went to medical school in the first place and and see, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, it's, this is not a transformational change. These are small, subtle changes. Just try to add, you know, a minute or two of, of, of you know, of humanizing care to every encounter, to encourage your staff, uh, whether it be uh, in front of office or the back of the office, um, to think about this as a philosophical decision that practices make and to say that overall, our value to our patients and our value to the payers is really based upon this level of connection with our patients. You know. Um, in some of the talks I give, I say the, the Ford Taurus that you rent from budget is the same as the Ford Taurus that you rent from Hertz. And yet people pay more at Hertz and they pay more from Hertz for the same exact car because of the nature of the experience that uh, the rental experience that's wrapped around the car. And so you can avoid the front desk, there's less friction, uh, you can pay uh, you know, from your phone and there's a whole bunch of things um, that in the rental car business have been done 
to make that experience more seamless and, 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 and frictionless. And while some of those may be appropriate for medicine, I think in our case, the degree to which that we can increase our value as clinicians and, our va and the value of our medical practices uh, is to say it's that experience management piece that's really going to make the difference uh, as opposed to treating healthcare delivery as a commodity or a technical issue. You know, I, I do this diagnosis and I prescribe this drug, I do this diagnosis, I perform this procedure. Uh, but that's the rental car, that's the Ford Taurus. Uh, the, the more we can wrap that in these careful human experiences, the more value we're going to have in, in the marketplace. Well, Dr. Marin, thanks so much for joining us and sharing these insights today. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Care Credit for sponsoring today's show. Also, thanks to our guest, Dr. Stephen Marin. Dr. Marin can be heard speaking at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. For more information, check out our annual conference blog at mgma.com fuse. And as a thank you for being a podcast listener, you can save $200 off registration. Go to mgma.com slash bigeasy19 and use the code POD200 to take advantage of the savings. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.